According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Turn the word of God to Luke chapter 2 as we get started this morning. Luke chapter 2. Examining verses 21 through 28. From Luke chapter 2. We haven't printed any of the uh, Harmony of the Gospels for a while. And uh, hopefully everybody has them. At one point I had two extra ones stashed up here for an emergency. <laughs> I don't know if they're around yet or either. No, I don't think I have any extras up here this morning. But if you are following in, our, uh, in the Harmony of the Gospel outline... We are ready now to take our first look at the 10th and 11th portions of the section that's titled Birth, Infancy, and Adolescence of Jesus and John the Baptist. Um, number 10 with reference to Jesus' circumcision from Luke 2.21 and number 11 with reference to the witness of Simeon and Anna in Luke 2.22-38. through 38. And so we will be dealing with these issues here this morning. Before we do any of this, though, let's take time for silent prayer to ensure that we're filled with the Spirit, equipped to handle spiritual truth. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word and the opportunity we have this morning to assemble together and receive instruction. We thank you for your faithfulness in our lives day by day, and we ask for distractions to be set aside for concentration upon the truth that you might open the eyes of our understanding. And we thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right. We'll have this up and running for later on in the morning. I really did thought I had some extra harmonies. I'll make sure we have more of those printed off before next week. In dealing with the witness of Simeon and Anna... Or, actually, prior to that, dealing with the circumcision to verse 21, when eight days had passed before his circumcision, his name was then called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. We have had discussion on this already, and we'll have more discussion on this coming up uh, this morning with reference to this name, to the name of Jesus, as opposed to the name of Emmanuel. The prophesied name that was given to him in Isaiah 700 years prior was, Behold, a virgin shall be with son and bear a child, and he shall be called Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. And some of the uh, questions that then arise was, well, how come when Jesus was then born 700 years later, how come they didn't give him the name Emmanuel? How come they gave him the name of Jesus? See, and these are the things that we deal with when we look at the distinctions between first advent fulfillment, second advent fulfillment, and so forth. Also, things that we look at when we deal with prophecy as it's given and prophecy as it's fulfilled. And the nature of the fact that the name, Emmanuel, God with us, is explained by its meaning, we can then identify that name being fulfilled even if the proper name, Emmanuel, is not actually assigned at that point of time. So, anyway, we will have more on that 
in upcoming classes, particularly as we focus upon what ultimately becomes his second Advent work, that is, the government shall rest on his shoulders, and there shall be no end of his of the increase of his government or of peace. The zeal of the Lord of hosts shall accomplish this. Much of what Isaiah was referencing there with God with us is actually second Advent in its fulfillment. It is still waiting the the uh, uh, completion when Jesus Christ returns and reigns in uh, in the millennium. So as we look at this particular passage, let's make a number of observations. First of all, with point one, Joseph and Mary were careful to obey all their angelic instructions and observe all Mosaic law commandments. Joseph and Mary were very careful to obey all their angelic instructions. Remember, each of them had been under angelic instruction prior to their getting married that they each had been visited, they each had had messages delivered to them, they each had to believe those messages by faith. Mary had to believe by faith that she would indeed become pregnant uh, as a virgin and bear a child. And uh, Mary understood that that had been the case when she indeed became pregnant and personally knew that she was still a virgin. Uh, so for her, in her case, the, the faith was exercised, and yet it was exercised... Um, in a sense, knowing the reality, because knowing that she had not engaged in sexual activity, knowing that she was pregnant, believing the angel's message, and so forth. Joseph was a little bit more an aspect of faith, in that he also had to believe the angel's message, that this pregnancy was caused by God, but he himself had to, of course, make that faith acceptance, not on the basis of his personally knowing, if that makes a difference. In any event, they were both under angelic instruction prior to their coming together. And as we have observed, both in the Matthew account of, of Joseph and in the Luke account of Mary, both responded in positive volition, both responded by believing the message that they received, and both followed the instructions they were given. They continue to follow those instructions nine months later, or however many months later, when the baby actually is born, and they give him the name of Jesus. Each one of them had been told that his name would be called Jesus, and so they are in obedience here, and they name him Jesus. But they're also observing Mosaic Law commandments. And in the course of doing that, of course, comes the circumcision on the eighth day, comes the presentation in the temple, the first fruits offerings that would then be offered in the temple. And that's what we get into in uh, these following verses. Verse 22 says, When the days for their purification according to the law of Moses were completed, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. And they are going to be uh, observing and fulfilling the requirements of the law. This is very important because this is not anything Jesus was doing in his own volition. This was not something that Jesus was doing in order to... Uh, uh, make himself artificially fulfill all of the Old Testament prophecies. See, a, a skeptic or an accuser might come along and say, well, when he was traveling around Israel and he was teaching with his disciples, he was doing these things, he took steps himself that could be viewed as fulfilling prophecy. See, and so he, you know, he had his disciples engineer the the triumphal entry scene, for example, because he knew that that would be looked at as fulfilling the Zechariah prophecy of, "Behold, here comes your Messiah, humble and riding on a colt." And and I guess if you're if you're that desperate to try to accuse Christ of fraud and, and accuse him and his disciples of engineering certain things, then um, 
I guess you could go down that road, but much of what fulfilled Old Testament prophecy was actually achieved prior to Jesus even being old enough to actively participate in all of this deception, <laughs> right? In which case, it must have been Joseph and Mary that, that actively promoted this fraud, and then, and then they were able to continue it in Jesus' life after Joseph died, that he could carry on the torch and, and, per, and perpetuate all this fraud and so forth. The much simpler understanding is, of course, the Old Testament prophecies indicated what was going to happen, and then it happened. And the Gospels record what happened and demonstrate the faithful fulfillment of prophecies. It's quite remarkable, too, that if you're going to really go down that road to say, well, people after the fact were doing what they could to fulfill these things, well, then that means that Herod was also in on the, the whole act because he conveniently murdered all those babies in Bethlehem as a part of Jesus' scheme to you know, to fulfill prophecies and all these other things. Well, obviously, <clears throat> what we're dealing with here is the blessings of the Bible, giving the record and the, uh, in prophetic terms, and then fulfilling it and showing us his faithfulness throughout. So, the issue of Jesus Christ being born under the law is vital for a lot of studies, not only for the prophetic nature of it, looking ahead to the uh, fulfillment of it, but also in the New Testament record looking back. Because the book of Galatians highlights the fact that Jesus Christ was born under the law. That he was born of a woman, born under the law. And in reality, his fulfillment of the law in not violating any of the requirements, in remaining the land without spot and blemish, with fulfilling every human expectation, then becomes critical by uh, then allowing us to not be needing to, to meet those requirements. And I hope that makes sense. That we are in Christ, and Christ fulfilled the law. And by virtue of doing so, then, the law becomes, uh, what does Hebrews call it? Obsolete, ready to disappear. It no longer has bearing for our application in the uh, dispensation of the church in the age of grace. So as we observe these things, we, we're going to see consistently throughout the, old, uh, throughout the life of Christ study um, that he will be observing Passovers, that he will be observing the Feast of Tabernacles, that he uh, meets all of the requirements as the Bible gives them, not necessarily as the Pharisees teach them. You know, he's not always going to observe every Sabbath uh, in keeping with the Pharisees' expectations, but he certainly keeps them in accordance with what the law delivers. And he certainly doesn't violate any elements of the law. He violates the Pharisees' expectations time and time and time again, and they hate him for it. But he never violates the law. He fulfills the law. He observes the law. He's very careful to do so. And uh, that will be a theme that we will observe repeatedly throughout this study. So I wanted to draw that to our attention in these early messages um, from his childhood, observing the the uh, observance of his parents and their care to observe all of the expectations and the requirements here. Now, under this sub point A, they gave him the name Jesus. They gave him the name Jesus. They gave him the name Jesus. This was under angelic instruction. This was not under legal ob observation. This was not under Old Testament. Prophecy. There is no Old Testament prophecy that says his name shall be Jesus. Of course, in the Old Testament, that would have been Joshua. All right. There's no Old Testament prophecy that says his name shall be Joshua. It says his name shall be Emmanuel. So when they give him the name of Jesus, they are obeying the angelic instruction that preceded the pregnancy, that preceded the marriage. Each one of them 
uh, receiving that instruction prior to them coming together, but after them coming together, they together obeyed the angelic instruction. A couple of reminders. As I mentioned, we've, we went through this one other time. They gave him the name Jesus. The name Jesus in the Greek, sub-point one, is Jesus. If you're going to spell it out with the Greek letters, you have the capital Iota, or I, right there, and then the long E. Whoops, lost my pen. Pen. The capital letter Iota, which is the I, the long E, or the Eta, S-O-U-S, Jesus. Okay? Now, one word is good for spotting the two forms of sigma. That's a sigma there, and that's a sigma there. It just takes a different form when it appears at the end of the word as opposed to when it appears at the beginning or the middle of a word. So this is the proper name, Jesus. When the iota occurs first and we transliterate it, we usually give it a Y instead of an I. And so when we transliterate Jesus, it's Y-E-S-O-U-S, Jesus. Number 2424, in the Strong's Index, it means the Lord, or Jehovah, is salvation. The Lord is salvation. This is the name that he's given. Remember, the announcement is not that Christ has appeared. The announcement is there has been born a Savior. His work in First Advent is the work of salvation. And he, can, and he ministers and he lives and he dies all under the name of Salvation, all under the name of the Lord is salvation. The Hebrew equivalent is Joshua, Yahashua, under subpoint two. And with the Hebrew lettering, I went ahead and gave you the transliteration Y E H O W S H U A apostrophe Yehoshua, number thirty ninety one. Again, Yahweh is salvation. The verb Yasha means to save or to deliver. We've attached the name of the Lord in front of that. And I hope we can understand this. In the very name we are given the gospel message, man cannot save himself. (laughs) Human effort can't do it. Man can't do it. I don't qualify. The only way I will be delivered, eternally delivered from the lake of fire, is by the work of the Lord. Jehovah saves. There's no other, or Yahweh saves. There is no other way for it. The uh, the verb here is Yasha. That's the verb right there, Yasha. You see it in the name right there. Okay? And you put Jehovah on the front of it, you have Jehovah saves. The Lord is salvation. And this is the name they were given. This was the name that they gave him. This was the name he lived under, he ministered under, he died under. He never does adopt, in the first advent, he never adopts the name Emmanuel. The government does not rest on his shoulders. He does not rule with a rod of iron. He does not crush his enemies and deliver Israel. He does not bring Israel, lift Israel to worldwide prominence. In fact, politically, he did nothing for Israel whatsoever. When he was born, Israel was under Roman dominion. When he died, Israel was under Roman dominion. In fact, 35 years after his death, or 40 years after his death, 70 A.D., okay, crucifixion in 33, so that's 37 years later, Jerusalem will be destroyed. The Roman dominion will continue. The temple will be destroyed. Jerusalem will be destroyed. Tremendous affliction to the Jewish people that then follows. First Advent is the work of salvation. 
this becoming uh, paramount even in his naming. All right? Point B then. They circumcised him on the eighth day. They circumcised him on the eighth day. Born under the law, observing all the requirements of the law. This is a requirement that goes all the way back to even before the law, but it does go back to Abraham as an expectation for the children of the covenant, the children of promise, under Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So for this, we go all the way back to Genesis 17, and then we'll stop off in Leviticus 12. Genesis 17. Genesis 17:12. <coughs> save myself a lot of flipping if I went ahead and just opened this up. Is that readable? Oh, no, it's not readable. That's horrible. Has it been blurry the whole morning? Nobody said anything? PowerPoint wasn't blurry? That's getting worse. Getting better, sharper, sharper. Well, I can fix little letters. That's We're talking about a new projector. We approved one in... Uh, July, and then we're waiting now, so we'll see what happens. Every male among you, and this is in the context of the uh, Abrahamic covenant, this is in the context of the promise, this is in the chapter where Abram becomes Abraham. Very important, Abram becomes Abraham. Quite remarkable that in chapter 16, Ishmael was born to Abram. But Isaac is born to Abraham. They both have the same father, of course, but I, I find that distinction significant in that Ishmael was born to Abram. Of course, they claim that Abraham is their father. That is not true. Ishmael was born to Abram. Isaac was born to Abraham. All right? But in the giving of this covenant... This is my covenant, and this is an I will covenant. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. And you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be the sign of the covenant between me and you. Remember, the Abrahamic covenant is unconditional. All of the obligations are on God's part to maintain. Abraham has no obligations to maintain. But this being the sign of the unconditional covenant... Abraham's, by faith, obedience, and participation is limited to this particular sign that is obediently circumcising himself and his descendants. And every male among you who is eight days old shall be circumcised throughout your generations. A servant who is born in the house or who is bought with money from any foreigner who is not of your descendants. So not only his literal sons, but those that are in his house. Why? Because they identify with his covenant. <coughs> Excuse me. They identify with his house. 
in service to his house. <clears throat> Sharon, can you get me something to drink, please? Anything? Anything liquid? <clears throat> so this is the covenant or the expectation of circumcision as uh, given to Abraham. Now, <clears throat> over in Levit- Leviticus, <clears throat> oh, this is terrible. So Genesis 17 is the establishment of circumcision as a sign of the Abrahamic covenant. Leviticus now in chapter 12 becomes the codification of that under Mosaic law. Leviticus 12.3. Alright, Leviticus 12.3. And on the eighth day... You don't get much context when the verse is that big, do you? <laughs> The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel, saying, When a woman gives birth and bears a male child, then she shall be unclean for seven days. As in the days of her menstruation, she shall be unclean. This has nothing to do with hygiene. This has everything to do with ceremonial purity. And we've described this in the uh, Through the Bible Notebook. We described this in understanding the nature of Old Testament worship and how believers could participate in the uh, functions of worship and the functions of, of observing the feasts and so forth. She would, would be ceremonially unclean for seven days. That's doubled if she gives birth to a daughter, by the way. All right? <clears throat> so that meaning that any mother that has a baby, say she has a baby, um, you know, two days before, before uh, Passover. All right, well... She's going to be ceremonially unclean then for Passover. And she will not be participating with her family, her neighbors, her clan, the nation of Israel in the observance of the holy convocation. She's not eligible to observe. She's not eligible to participate by virtue of her ceremonial uncleanness. <clears throat> As a practical basis, she doesn't even need to have a baby, the, the monthly Menstruation cycle, likewise, carried with it ceremonial uncleanness. On the eighth day, the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. Then she shall remain in the blood of her purification for 33 days. So there's a seven-day and then a 33-day period. For Like I say, if it was for a girl, then these numbers get doubled. The seven gets doubled, doubled to 14, and the uh, 33, I believe, gets doubled to 66. I'm a little rusty on my Leviticus. She shall not touch any consecrated thing, nor enter the sanctuary until the days of her purification are completed. Yep, and there it is. 
If the, if she bears a female child, then she shall be unclean for two weeks, as in her menstruation, and she shall remain in the blood of her purification for 66 days. So each figure then got doubled. The 7 doubled to 14, the 33 doubled to 66. And this is for ritual purification. This has nothing to do with hygiene. This has nothing to do with anything else. All right? With respect to these things. So, uh, what are we pointing out when we get back into Luke? We're pointing out that he was observing the law. Brought, born under the law, brought up in the law. Brought up under all of the expectations of the law. Under all of the rigid requirements of the law. Brought up into a system of law in which he was not qualified to be a priest. And he never functions as a Levitical priest. As we observe him from his baptism in the River Jordan, to the calling of his disciples, to the, the various ministries that he undertakes, the messages that he delivers, the miracles that he performs, he never functions as a Levitical priest. He's not qualified to. He's of the tribe of Judah, uh, the, of the tribe of Judah, of the line of David. He is not a priest at all, according to the Levitical priesthood, according to the law. He cannot function as a priest. But after the order of Melchizedek, the power of an indestructible life, he does indeed function as a priest. He offers up high priestly prayers, in fact, throughout his ministry. But the most powerful, perhaps, is the prayer of John 17, as he sanctifies his disciples, as he prepares for his sacrifice. Remember, when he hangs on the cross, he is the offering, but he is also the offerer. He is also the priest, offering up himself in our place. And he functions not on the Levitical priesthood, not on the basis of earthly requirements and who his lineage is and, and, and following a, a, an external ritual, but functioning as the great high priest, the apostle and high priest of our confession. It's a glorious thing. So, some of these messages we're giving now, we're taking the time to, I hope, lay a real good foundation to where we can see that high priestly prayer in John 17. When we can see him minister as the great high priest, as the apostle and a high priest of our confession. When we can see the content of what he, what he goes into in John 17. It's powerful. But it's not Levitical. <laughs> it's not under Mosaic law. Because under Mosaic law, it's quite clear, Hebrews says, it's quite clear that he's not qualified to be a priest at all. All right? Again, Joseph and Mary were careful to obey all their angelic instructions and observe all Mosaic law commandments. Thirdly, point C, they brought their first fruit offerings to the Lord. They brought their first fruit offerings to the Lord. Returning back to Luke 2, 22 through 24. Now, did I ruin the focus on this? Is this now blurry because I made the other one clear? No, okay. Did this get better? Okay. They brought their first fruit offering to the Lord. Now, reading from Luke chapter 2. When the days for their purification according to the law of Moses were completed. So, this is not the eighth day for circumcision. That they did in Bethlehem. You don't have to take every baby boy to the temple to get him circumcised. You do that where you are. Um, so on the eighth day, he's circumcised. But then with the days for their purification according to the law. So this is 7 plus 33. It's now been 40 days. 
He's 40 days old at this point. So if he was born on Christmas, then uh, <laughs> December 25th, 40 days, well, figure it out, whatever it is, all right? February sometime. They brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. Presented before the Lord. Again, this is all a part of the, the Mosaic Law ritual. Expectations. We're dealing with ritual purity. We're dealing with ritual observance to present the first fruits. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. It's interesting if you have a string of girls, they didn't open the womb. <laughs> All right. They, uh, they, they, they were conceived there and they grew there and they came out of there when they got born, but they didn't open the womb. Not under the law, not uh, under the principle here of the firstborn male. That is the the right of inheritance, the uh, heritage of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that was being dispensed to the generations that followed. It was the male son that's described here. Every firstborn male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what was said in the law of the Lord. And they brought a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. That's verses 22 through 24. The choice of offerings here is significant. And we will examine this here now at this time. Alright, so let's get some Old Testament foundation again. In this case, Exodus 13, 11 through 16 and Leviticus 12, 6 through 8. Exodus 13, 11 through 16. It's a bit small on the right, isn't it? There we go. Exodus 13, 11 through 16. Now it shall come about when the Lord brings you to the land of the Canaanite as he swore to you and to your fathers and gives it to you that you shall devote to the Lord. And notice this is Upon their entrance into the land, this is upon their acceptance of the land grant that was promised to Abraham. The land that was promised to Abraham that Abraham never occupied in its fullness. In fact, the only spot Abraham lived in was a spot that he purchased from um, the Canaanites that were there. Imagine he had to buy his own land. God promised it to him and yet he bought a portion of it anyway. And settled there, dwelt there as a sojourner in his own land. That you shall devote to the Lord the first offspring of every womb, that the first offspring of every beast that you own, the males, belong to the Lord. But every first offspring of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb. But if you do not redeem it, then you shall break its neck. Say, don't, uh, you can't make use of it. If you're going to be a cheapskate and not dedicated to the Lord, don't think you can make use of it. You're going to break its neck. And every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. Every firstborn of your sons you shall redeem. Verse 14, And it shall be when your sons ask you in the time to come, saying, What is this? That you shall say to him, With a powerful hand, the Lord brought us, Jehovah, brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. And it came about when Pharaoh was stubborn about letting us go, that the Lord killed every firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of beast. So this dedication to the Lord of the firstborn was a reminder of how they were delivered out of bondage with the Passover sacrifice, with the Passover, uh, with the first, the, the, the uh, death of the firstborn male child. 
Therefore I sacrifice to the Lord the males, the first offspring of every womb, but every firstborn of my sons I redeem. All right, so your sheep has a firstborn, you sacrifice it to the Lord. We're not going to sacrifice your child, <laughs> human sacrifice. No, 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 no. We're going to redeem. We're going to present him as, a, as, a, as an offering, and then we're going to redeem that male child. So it shall serve as a sign on your hand and as phylacteries on your forehead. For with a powerful hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt. It's a reminder of the deliverance from Egypt and the death of the firstborn males that occurred on that night, that tenth plague, when Pharaoh finally said, all right, go. And how they were brought out of the land of Egypt and, uh, and then established in their own land. All right. Second Old Testament passage then that addresses this, Leviticus 12, 6 through 8. Here we have the stipulations under the law. And when the days of her purification are completed for a son or for a daughter, she shall bring to the priest at the doorway of the tent of meeting a one-year-old lamb for a burnt offering and a burnt and a young pigeon or a turtle dove for a sin offering. Then he shall offer it before the Lord and make atonement for her, and she shall be cleansed from the flow of her blood. This is the law for her who bears a child, whether a male or female. All right? So bring a, bring a lamb, bring a bird. Ah, but verse 8. If she cannot afford a lamb, then she shall take two turtle doves or two young pigeons, the one for a burnt offering and the other for a sin offering, and the priest shall make atonement for her, and she shall be clean. All right? Now, which offering was it that Mary brought to the temple in Luke chapter 2? She didn't bring a lamb and a bird. She brought the two birds. Okay? This is often observed and noted in terms of their humble circumstances, in terms of their economic uh, standing at this point, in terms of uh, their, they were sons of David, certainly. But they were not residents of Judea. They were not residents of Bethlehem. They were residents of Nazareth. Carpenters, as Joseph was a carpenter, a tradesman, um, that had to come to Bethlehem for the census and so forth, but not of any significant means, or he would have brought, they would have presented a lamb and a bird. Instead, they brought the two birds. Stopping and considering the nature of travel, and even going from Nazareth to Bethlehem, and the time that they spent there. How long have they been here now at this point? Well, at least 40 days since the birth. And they arrived shortly before the birth for the census. So they've been, they've been living here in Bethlehem during this time. In fact, they're still going to be here in two more years when the, when the Majoi show up. Okay. Well, <laughs> how's that carpentry business doing back in Nazareth? Probably not doing too well. He's probably... Set up shop here in, in Bethlehem and tried to, tried to get operations going here. You know, drumming up new customers. <laughs> Putting word out. Trying to relocate his business. How easy is it to relocate your business and get a new customer base? Anyway, lots of things there. We don't have answers to these things. But we can glean clues and little bits and pieces and, and, and it's undeniable that they brought the cheap offering. Okay? Well, what I mean by that, they bring, you know what I mean by that, okay? <laughs> they bring the lesser of the two offerings that reflects their financial ability at the time. And I find this extraordinary. How much grace is there in the law anyway? There's a lot of grace in the law. The law had enough grace to say, 
we realize that if you're not well enough off, you probably can't afford a lamb and a sheep. I mean, a lamb and a bird. So we'll, we have a, a more economical version of it here. Okay? You know, if you don't want name brand, we'll give you generic. Kind of, you know, on the, the pharmacy prescription. Okay? I think there's a lot of grace in the law. So, they're following the law. Joseph and Mary were careful to obey all their angelic instruction and observe all Mosaic law commandments. They gave him the name Jesus. They circumcised him on the eighth day. And they brought their first fruit offerings to the Lord. Now, while they are there, we're introduced to Simeon in verse 25. Point two, then, in your outline. Two servants are standing by at the temple to testify to the birth of Messiah. God has been faithful to have witnesses at each step. He had the shepherd witnesses for the manger. Now he has prophetic witnesses at the temple for the first fruits offering as it's presented. Two servants, and I probably should have said two servants of the Lord. You know, these aren't household servants. These aren't bond servants. Um, we have a prophet and a prophetess on hand. Two servants are standing by at the temple to testify to the birth of Messiah. How long have they been here? Quite a while. In uh, Simeon's case, we don't know and we have no way to know because the scripture record doesn't say. In Anna's case... We know that she was advanced in years. It says in verse 36, she had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and then as a widow to the age of 84. Now, we don't know how old she was when she got married and so if she was widowed seven years later, we don't know at what age she was widowed. Okay? We can, we can estimate that she was married at 13 or 15 or somewhere in there and we can estimate that she was widowed at 20 or 22. In which case, she's um, 60 years been a widow here to the age of 84, 60 plus years. And she never left the temple serving night and day with fastings and prayers. She became dedicated to the temple service as a widow. So we know how long she's been there, or we can estimate. Okay, It's not likely that she was uh, first married at uh, 70 <laughs> you know, widowed at 77 and, you know, been in the temple for six or eight years. No, she was most likely wid uh, married very young, widowed very young, and served for a considerable period of time here in the temple. In which case, she's very well known to Zacharias and Elizabeth, the Levitical priests that serve in the temple that we've been dealing with, John the Baptist's parents that we're looking at in uh, here in the Gospel of Luke. But we'll start with Simeon. So, so point A is going to be Simeon. So point B is Anna. Simeon and Anna. We won't get to Anna today, but we'll see how far we get with Simeon. Verses 25 through 35. He has 11 verses. Anna has 3 verses. Verses 36 through 38. Two servants. Now, these are servants of the Lord. Two witnesses, as it were. It's extraordinary. When God works with pairs, he works with witnesses. We think of, you know, uh, Moses and Aaron. And he sends two witnesses into Pharaoh to say, let my people go. And you think of the times when the Lord has worked in pairings of witnesses. He will do so again in the tribulation, by the way, when he lifts up two witnesses. Um, different places. 
The, the devil also likes to use pairs of witnesses. Jonas and John Braze that opposed Moses, other things. The devil likes working in pairs likewise. Um, but here are two witnesses, and remarkably enough, there's a prophet and a prophetess, a male and a female. One of the signature uh, unique natures of, of, of Christ's ministry that we're going to observe is the uh, frequent inclusion of women in his teaching, in his ministry, in his travels, that the inclusion of women that was totally contrary to custom, the woman at the well couldn't figure out why he was talking to her, and the the uh, the leading women that helped finance his ministry, we'll see, uh, his friendship with Mary and Martha. Much of the gospel record is quite remarkable in the inclusion of uh, of women. And so when two witnesses are, are set apart at the temple to observe this first fruits offering, it's, uh, it's uh, kind of neat here that, that the Lord selected a prophet and a prophetess to, uh, to be these two witnesses. All right. Now, Simeon is not, strictly speaking, called a prophet in this passage, but he does prophesy when he speaks of these things in his message uh, that we will see in verses 29 through 32, and then again in his second or his continued message in uh, verses 34 and 35. So the messages that he delivers are obviously prophetic, and so I don't think it's a stretch to call them a prophet and prophetess. Anna clearly has the title in verse 36. There was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. And we'll talk about her. Uh, like I said, we won't get to her today. But it's it's interesting, isn't it, that we have the tribe of Asher there when, uh, you know, I thought they were part of the ten missing tribes. <laughs> you know, the lost tribes of Israel, you know. And, well, how could Asher be a lost tribe if, if Anna knew where she was? <laughs> All right. Anyway, there's just other things there, the skeptics that just get so crazy in their, in their you know, Da Vinci Code insanity kind of stuff. All right. So it's the, it's the lost tribe of Asher except for Anna. Okay. Anyway, uh, let's deal with Simeon in our time remaining. So subpoint A is Simeon. First of all, under subpoint one, his description. His description. These terms in verse 25. He's introduced simply as there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. There was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. That's If you've ever written stories or if you're an author, you want to write a story, and you think about how are you going to start a story, you know, once upon a time. <laughs> All right. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. You know, stuff like that. We're, we're introducing a character. And I'm, I'm commenting upon this here in this way because there have been many, many attempts in the first century, on through the 20th century, and now in the 21st century, there are no end of attempts and speculation to try to turn this Simeon into somebody well-known. Okay, Somebody that was famous, somebody that was well-known in his day or in later years, and build all kinds of legends and stories about this Simeon. Because he can't die. It's revealed that he will not see death until he sees the Christ. And so... We can develop all these legends and all this fiction and all this... You know, think about it. What if Simeon was born, you know, 900 years ago? Well, he could be 900 years old right now. And he can't die until he sees the Christ. 
Very fanciful. Now, we expect that he is quite old. We expect that he is elderly, just in the context of this passage. But we, we have no way to say that he was, that he was born in Isaiah's generation, that he lived 700 years, or that he, there's nothing in the biblical record that supports that. There's nothing in the extra-biblical record that supports that. But there is a huge desire to try to craft this legend or this myth out of Simeon. Okay? And he's not the only one. They, they do a lot of weird things with Lazarus, too, by the way. <laughs> All right? The guy that died and came back. And, okay? I think in some of the early centuries, there was a lot of desire to, to do that. And that's why we have so many apocryphal books. So... Uh, what I'm highlighting here in this text, though, in verse 25, when Luke writes these words, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. He's introducing an otherwise unknown character. He's introducing somebody that would otherwise be obscure, unknown. Okay, Luke doesn't tie him into anybody famous. Luke doesn't say, oh, by the way, he was a leading Pharisee of his day. That he was the son of the most famous Pharisee of Jewish rabbinical tradition. And the father of the second most famous Pharisee of Jewish rabbinical tradition. I'll give you some of the names and spell out some of the dates here uh, in a moment. But I'm just observing from the, the language of verse 25. There was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And then the description of him. This man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. Okay? That's it. That's the biblical record of him as far as his background is concerned. Now, the prophecy and then more information is given. But as far as his resume, his, his background, if, if he was indeed um, related to the high priest, if he was indeed uh, a leading Pharisee, if he was indeed an influential member of the council, if all of these other legends or rumors or things were, were factual, they, uh, then verse 25 would not have been written the way that it was. It would not have been a matter to just simply say there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. Okay? It'd be like uh, writing something about uh, somebody famous today, you know, and, and, and just letting it go at that. You know, writing a story about uh, George W. Bush and saying, you know, there was a man who was uh, born in Midland and ran an oil company, you know, and just overlooking the fact that, oh, yeah, you know, and he became president. <laughs> All right. So I think the language of verse 25 here is, is significant in that it is introducing an otherwise unknown character. And likewise with Anna, although we do have her father mentioned there and her tribe, um, there's no attempt to turn Anna into somebody um, of, of tremendous significance. Now, his description these terms, righteous and devout. He's called righteous and devout. <laughs> okay, they were supposed to come up one at a time, but there's A, B, and C. He's called righteous and devout under subpoint A. Dikaios and Eulabes. Righteous and devout. Now, righteous indicates he's a born-again believer because there's no other way to attain to righteousness. It must be given. He must believe. Abraham believed in God and was reckoned to him as righteousness. He could not be called righteous if he was not saved. He's an Old Testament believer saved by looking forward to the coming Christ. But he's also called devout. Eulabes. E-U-L-A-B-E-S. Eulabes. This is a believer who's not just a believer, but he's walking in the light. He's growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. 
See, dikaios can describe a believer in his positional righteousness, but he's not only positionally righteous, he is devout. He is eulabes, that is, pleasing the Lord, striving to be pleasing, walking in the light. This is a serious, committed believer. It's not just a you know, a believer of convenience who's saved and glad to be saved and glad that he's going to go to heaven when he dies, but not really living life on earth for Christ. This is just the description of a serious Christian way of life. The finding of these terms together is, is quite rare. In fact, I meant to do some searches and, and put some comparisons up there. It doesn't appear very often when it occurs. This is the kind of language you would find in descriptions of Job. This is the kind of uh, description you would find in terms of Noah. The uh, kind of description that was given to Zacharias and Elizabeth in chapter 1. That uh, they were righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all of the commandments and requirements of the Lord. But they are not given the term eulabes that Simeon is given. Simeon is both righteous and eulabes, devout, devout. Okay, This term may not be as significant here in this chapter for our particular study, but uh, Eulabase and Eusebea and some of these other related terms become vital in understanding what's going on in the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. And the believers who come to Jerusalem to observe Pentecost. They're believers in Jerusalem that have traveled from Cappadocia and Bithynia and everywhere in the civilized world they have traveled to Jerusalem because they are righteous and devout. They are devout men coming to observe Pentecost. That is, saved under the Old Testament, looking forward to the coming of Christ. They get to Jerusalem, they are observing Pentecost, and they are informed of, oh, by the way, the Christ you're looking for came, he is Jesus Christ, and they were then added to the church at that point of time. Anyway, that's for future study, but keep these words in mind. Eulabes, Eulabea, Eusebea, some of these terms that will apply in further studies down the road. He's also described in his activity. Under subpoint A, we have the adjectives, righteous and devout. Under subpoint B, we have his activity, looking for the consolation of Israel. Looking for the consolation of Israel. Now, the participle activity here speaks of his contemporaneous activity, the activity that he's doing here in the temple. He's looking. Looking for... And it's a fascinating phrase, the consolation of Israel. Not looking for the Savior. Not looking for the Christ. He is a believer in anticipation of the coming Christ. But what he's specifically looking for is called the consolation of Israel. The paraklesis of Israel. Alright, there's your participle, prosdecamai, looking for. But this is the consolation of Israel, the paraklesis of Israel. Now, paraklesis we've done in many studies. It's our term for paraclete. It's our term for the Holy Spirit in many cases, the comforter. Jesus Christ promised that when he left, he would send a comforter, a parakletos. He would send a comforter. And the Holy Spirit then comes, and he is our comforter. He, is our, he guides us in the truth, and he ministers in the, in the dispensation of the church. But... Simeon was looking for the comfort of Israel, the paraklesis, comfort, consolation of Israel. Now, the Holy Spirit was upon him. That's the third statement that's made. 
This man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. That's significant. Most believers in the Old Testament didn't have the Holy Spirit. And it's especially significant when we understand that there has been no writing prophet since Malachi. Okay? 400 years have gone by since any writing prophet has arisen. In the years of silence, as we understand it, there were no prophets at all. All right? The Jewish traditions record that there were no prophets at all. That, that Malachi, or Malachi, <laughs> sorry, I've been thrown by that ever since Fruchtenbaum mentioned it. He, he, he referred to this great Italian prophet in the Old Testament and referenced the prophet Malachi there. And, the, and I've, I stumble occasionally. And uh, I don't want to be one to dispute the great scholarship of Arnold Fruchtenbaum. The man's a, a genius and lots of degrees and letters after his name. So I, I'm going to take his word at, at Malachi. But after Malachi, there's no prophets. At least no writing prophets, and in all likelihood, no prophets of any kind. Until the baptizer is called, John the Baptist was a prophet, and now here's Simeon, who has a prophetic revelation given to him that he won't see death until he sees the Christ, and who also utters prophetic utterances, and then Anna, who is a prophetess. All of a sudden, after 400 years, we have prophets that start to pop up again, and then, of course, the greatest prophet of of all time is then born, of a virgin in the manger. And so these, uh, these then become important. Now this one prophet, Simeon, is looking for the consolation of Israel. He's spirit-filled, and yet he's looking for the paraclesis of Israel. He's looking for the Spirit's ministry in all of Israel. I believe what he's looking forward to here is the Joel 2 promise. He's looking for the, the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So we don't have a lot of time left, but... Let's turn back to Joel 2 and take a look at it. Daniel, Hosea, Joel. And it's remarkable. This is a this is a passage of warfare and conflict. It starts off with blow a trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Talking about the day of the Lord is coming. Surely it is near. goes on to describe this. The uh, warfare that arises is like nothing that's ever come before and nothing that will ever come again. There is a great and mighty people. There has never been anything like it, nor will there be again after it. Okay. So it's unique. We understand this to be tribulational, which is also described as like nothing ever before or after. And uh, their description and all these items here. And the darkness. Verse 10, Before them the earth quakes, the heavens tremble, the sun and the moon grow dark, and the stars lose their brightness. We understand in Armageddon, or in the, uh, in the tribulational wars that precede and lead up to Armageddon, that these signs in the heavens will be occurring, and that they will be very frightening to the demons, the fallen angels, the human beings involved. The Lord utters his voice before his army. Surely his camp is very great. For strong is he who carries out his word. The day of the Lord is indeed great and very awesome. And who can endure it? Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart. See, in the midst of tribulation, hell on earth, God is going to have two witnesses 
God will continue to give Israel the opportunity to repent, to be humbled, to turn to him and be saved. So there's a lot that occurs here in this chapter. Now, going down to verse 28. There is deliverance that's promised in this. And uh, that the Lord will deliver them. The zeal of the Lord will deliver them. And the armies that are attacking them will be removed. And blessings will be extended. And the things that will occur there. And then notice. It will come about after this. Verse 28. It will come about after this. If we're going to, if we're going to have any handle on Joel 2, 28 and 29... If we're going to have any handle on this prophecy that so many people get confused with, we have to understand it will come about after this. In other words, we have to consider the entire message of chapter 2, in reality, the entire message of chapters 1 and 2, and what Joel is delivering here in his message. I'm hoping that in some of the upcoming series that are going to be taught on Sunday night that uh, Glenn Carnegie may be doing something in the book of Joel on the day of the Lord. And there is a very profitable study that, uh, that comes out of this. But it will come about after this, that I will pour out my Spirit on all mankind. Okay, Now this pouring out of the Spirit, I believe, is what Simeon is looking for. I believe what Simeon is looking for is not a political deliverance. Uh, He's not looking for an earthly activity. He's looking for the fulfillment of the Lord's promises. Okay, which we understand to be second advent, but he doesn't know that. And he's looking not at political issues, but he's looking at spiritual issues. Because he himself is spirit-filled. And he is looking for a period of time when Israel will also be spirit-filled. The consolation of Israel, the paraclesis of Israel. And we do know when in the church the Holy Spirit is sent, he's called the comforter. I find the the uh, reference here to be quite striking. So it will come about after this that I will pour out my spirit on all mankind, and your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams, your young men will see visions. Even on the male and female servants, these are bond slaves. There's going to be slavery in the millennium. I'll let you think on that for a while. (laughs) Okay. Even on the male and female servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. Now, Peter cites this passage in in Acts chapter 2 on Pentecost. Okay. But Pentecost that began the church does not fulfill Joel 2. Peter cited it to illustrate what was happening, to convince his audience that they weren't drunk, but they were rather spirit-filled. But Peter never claimed that Joel 2 was fulfilled to begin the church. Joel 2 is fulfilled in the millennium. Also observe, I will pour out my spirit on all mankind. That's not true today. Born again believers have the Holy Spirit, certainly. But not the unbelievers. The vast majority of the human race is unbelievers. They don't have the Holy Spirit. Remember, broad is the path that leads to to destruction. Narrow is the gate and few find the way. See, we're on that narrow road. We're believers. We're in Christ the, the, the hoi polloi, the vast majority of planet Earth right now, is unsaved. That's the, that's the course of this age. 
So we can't find a church age fulfillment in this. The Spirit poured out on all mankind. That can't happen until every unbeliever is removed from the planet. Can God pour out His Spirit on all mankind today? Only if He's going to give the Holy Spirit to unbelievers. Verse 28 can only happen on the day after every unbeliever is removed from planet Earth. That is, in the Millennial Kingdom. Because after Armageddon, after the, after the tribulation comes to a close, the unbelievers are removed. Sheep and goat judgment. Sheep, goats, unbelievers are removed. Then can come the great consolation of Israel. Then can come the great paraclesis. The worldwide unfolding of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit can then indwell the entire human race because there's no more unbelievers left. Are you following me? That can't happen while there's unbelievers on the earth. Because the promise is, I will pour out my Spirit on all mankind. Now notice, the whole world, Jews and Gentiles, gets the Holy Spirit, but the prophetic ministry goes to who? Your sons and daughters will prophesy. The Jewish people will then have the prophetic ministry. The whole human race gets the Holy Spirit, but the Jewish people get the prophetic ministry with the Holy Spirit. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Because Israel is going to have to minister to the Gentiles during the Millennial Kingdom. Israel will be the prophetic teachers to the Gentiles during the Millennial Kingdom. So, we have a worldwide outpouring of the Holy Spirit, and yet we have a particular application, prophetic application, given to Israel. And I believe this is what Simeon was looking for when he was looking for, under prosdecami, continually looking for the paraclesis, or the paraclesin, to Israel. He was looking for the consolation of Israel. He was looking forward to the day when this ministry will commence. Okay? Now, of course, he didn't have all the information we have. He didn't understand first advent, second advent. He had no clue of the church. That was mystery, unrevealed. The prophets who were of old made careful search and inquiry, seeking to determine what time or person the, the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. Old Testament prophets could not distinguish between first and second advent. So don't, um, don't uh, think any less of Simeon because he was looking for the consolation of Israel. He had every expectation that when the Christ appeared, that this would indeed be a part of the blessings of the establishment of the nation of Israel and the establishment of the kingdom of the Christ. All right. Next week we will return to this and we will look at his promise in verse 26. The promise was no physical death until he physically sees the physical Christ. And uh, we'll get into that and we'll wrap up the remainder of Simeon. We'll talk about some of the legends that grew up about Simeon in some of the apocryphal works and so forth. And then we'll see the blessing that he gives when he prophesies with respect to this child in his arms. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for your faithfulness, for your mercy, love, and grace. Thank you for the privilege and blessing of assembling here this morning and receiving instruction. We thank you for the grace provision of uh, the, the tools that you bless us with, the projector, the equipment, the speakers, the tape recording, everything, Father. We live in an amazing day, and you bless us with such abilities, and we thank you for it. In Jesus Christ's name, amen.